Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. It's time for another installment of Were They Great, where we explore the reigns of rulers who were given the title The Great in order to determine if they really deserved that honor. In this installment, we're looking at a man who was infamous in most public circles due to a passage from the Christian Bible, King Herod of Judea. While he may be most well-known for trying to kill Jesus as a baby, Herod was actually vitally important for both the Jewish people and the Middle East during the early days of the Roman Empire. Honestly, Herod could easily have been given his own episode in my series over the Julio-Claudian dynasty. I mean, considering how many people he rubbed elbows with in that time period, he is very much a main character. He rose to power from a young age thanks to Julius Caesar and would basically come to rule Judea thanks to Mark Antony. However, he's been granted that illustrious and enviable title, The Great, meaning that I'm going to try taking a look at what he actually accomplished for his people. I've actually mentioned one of his major accomplishments somewhat recently in the episode I did over the Maccabees in the first Hanukkah. What Herod is probably most well known for, you know, besides setting up a dynasty and that whole Bible thing, was the refurbishment of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. On top of that, he was known for so many other building projects throughout the rest of his kingdom, but we'll be learning more about that later. Also, I do want to say up top that most historians nowadays consider the story of Herod ordering a bunch of young children and babies put to death completely fictional. There's no historical basis for it. And no, the New Testament does not count as a history book. Sorry. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the Kingdom of Judea in the 1st century BCE in Herod I of Judea. Was he great? In the background history lesson, we're actually going to learn a bit about how Herod came to power, considering that he was the first ruler of a new dynasty. The Maccabeans came to power in modern-day Israel and Palestine in the 160s BCE after freeing the Jewish people from control of the Seleucid Empire. If you want that whole story, listen to episode 46 over Judah Maccabeus. They were able to maintain some form of autonomy thanks in part to their powerful new ally, the Roman Republic. However, Rome's gonna roam, so almost a century later, Roman general Pompey the Great would swoop in and conquer the land of Judea in 63 BCE, turning it into another Roman province. In the interim period, there existed the Kingdom of Edom, known during this stage in history by its Greek name Edomea. The Edomaean people were believed to be of Nabataean origins. The Nabataeans were an Arabic people who settled in the area around the River Jordan, with their capital probably being the city of Petra in modern-day Jordan. In the 110s BCE, the Hasmonean leader, Yohanan Hyrcanus, conquered the kingdom of Edom and proclaimed the population was to convert to Judaism or leave their homeland. Many chose to convert to the religion of Judea. This meant that you now had a massive new population of people that were ethnically Arabic but practiced Judaism. This actually would end up being a bit contentious down the line, because Herod's family was from Edomea. It made people question whether someone like Herod, who was very much born into Judaism, was a real Jew. Well, the Romans didn't care about whether you were from Edom, Judea, Galilee, or probably even Syria. Jews were Jews. 
Rome also liked it when they could kind of control the people they put into power. As it turned out, they'd been having problems with the Jewish leader of Jerusalem, a man named Antigonus II. Antigonus had been taken to Rome as a prisoner after Pompey's conquest. He then escaped from Rome and took the throne from his uncle, Johannan Hyrcanus II. Antigonus claimed that his uncle was actually a puppet ruler being controlled by Antipater the Edumaean, who just so happened to be the father of Herod. Well, Antipater also happened to be good friends with Pompey and a certain other Roman general by the name of Julius Caesar. His relationship with the two was so good that they made Antipater the procurator of Rome and Judea, aka the guy who collects all the taxes in the region. Around this time, Herod was actually the governor of the region of Galilee. He also happened to be good friends with Caesar's cousin, Sextus Caesar. And if you've never listened to one of my Rome episodes, Julius Caesar's last name wasn't Caesar. Julius was what we would consider his last name. So it's just a coincidence that both him and his cousin had Caesar as their cognomen. Well, things also rapidly changed in the world because both Caesar and Pompey were dead. With Antigonus on the throne, Herod decided to turn to the power of Rome, something he had learned from his father. He fled to the Italian city and begged Mark Antony, now one of the most powerful men in the Western world, to help him oust Antigonus and reinstate Hyrcanus II as king of Judea. Well, Herod was thrown for a loop when, in 40 BCE, Antony and the Roman Senate decide to make him the new king of the Jews. Now, it was up to Herod to take back Judea. In doing so, he would lead Judea into a new age and create a powerful legacy. Perhaps the first great feat of Herod was actually getting the new status quo in Judea up and running. This meant bowing before the might of Rome. After all, without them, he wouldn't be king, not that he was expecting to be king in the first place. Ironically, after Judea had fought hard to win itself from the imperial powers of the Hellenic Seleucids, Herod was now exerting the total influence of Rome upon the Jewish people. Many of his building projects, which we'll get into in a moment, were named after major Roman figures as signs of appeasing his friends slash overlords. This wasn't particularly easy considering that the Hasmoneans were still around. In fact, Herod had married a Hasmonean princess in order to legitimize himself as the leader of Judea. His mother-in-law was Alexandra the Maccabee, daughter of Hyrcanus II and cousin of Antigonus II. She was not too keen on seeing a non-Hasmonean on the throne, especially after the war Herod had needed to wage in order to actually win the position in the first place. It also didn't help that Alexandra was good friends with a certain pharaoh of Egypt by the name of Cleopatra. By this time, Cleopatra was married to Mark Antony, Herod's very good friend. Fearing that Cleopatra would be able to convince Antony that Herod needed to go, the king of Judea acted quickly and killed a man named Aristobulus III, Alexandra's choice of replacement. This somehow just worked out, meaning Herod's throne was secure for that brief moment. And then Rome erupted into civil war. The alliance between Mark Antony and Octavian, aka the future Emperor Augustus, had splintered, and everyone in the Roman world was feeling the effects of their breakup. Well, Herod needed Rome, but no one actually knew who would rule Rome at the end of the day. 
Herod's father, Antipater, had been cunning with choosing allies, very much picking up and dropping friends whenever the tides changed. Herod was not like Antipater in that sense, so he decided to throw his lot in with Mark Antony during the Civil War. Obviously, Octavian won that Civil War, meaning Herod had to quickly figure out what exactly he was going to do. In 31 BCE, Herod met with Octavian, now going by Augustus, on the island of Rhodes in order to discuss his future. Yes, he had been Antony's friend, but Herod was able to make his worth known. Augustus needed Judea, and he needed it run by someone who would recognize Rome as the actual leaders in the region. Judea was on the frontiers of the Roman world and was its access to foreign luxuries. This argument convinced Augustus, even though in my opinion anyone else could have also sat on the throne and done the exact same thing. But convincing Augustus was no small feat, and the new emperor of Rome gladly allowed Herod to continue ruling his kingdom. In fact, he expanded Herod's lands by granting him the cities of Jericho and Gaza. Now firmly solidified as king of Judea and friend of Rome, Herod could continue his many projects that would make him a powerhouse within the region. Let's finally talk about Herod's building projects. They were perhaps his biggest claims to fame outside of the Bible. The architectural masterpieces built during Herod's reign spawned the term Herodian architecture, and it's always at least a little bit impressive when you get a type of architectural or artistic movement named after yourself. Herodian architecture very much mirrored the man it was named after. Herod was very much Jewish, despite what the people in Judea would sometimes say, but he was also basically a tool of the Roman Empire. Buildings used local materials, mostly the type of limestone named Meleke that is found throughout Israel and Palestine. Meleke has been used since very ancient times in Jerusalem. It means royal or kingly stone, since it was used to build basically every major monument and tomb in the city. However, many of the designs Herod ended up implementing were very clearly Greco-Roman in nature. Herod's building projects were basically non-stop throughout the first 20 or so years of his reign. He refurbished and redesigned many ancient structures throughout the city, such as the Cave of the Patriarchs, known to the Jews as the Cave of Machpelah and to the Muslims as the Ibrahim Mosque. He also built more classically Roman amenities within Jerusalem, such as an amphitheater, and he would go on to refurbish the aging aqueducts to a more Roman standard. However, he also greatly fortified or just straight up created new cities that followed Herodian architectural practices. These cities included Herodium, the only location he named after himself, and Caesarea Maritima, named in honor of Caesar Augustus, the latter which became a major trade port on the eastern Mediterranean Sea. On top of all that, he built three temples dedicated to Augustus. Not a Roman deity or, you know, Yahweh, but the living, breathing Emperor Augustus. Herod built dozens of palaces in his style all throughout Judea. One of the main new features of Herodian architecture was combining palaces with fortresses. These strongholds would contain one tower that was built much taller and sturdier than the others. These palaces maintained the outer workings of a Roman palace, but the insides would have followed Jewish conventions. In the Jewish customs of the 1st century BCE, you weren't supposed to depict humans or animals in art. It's said Herod followed this rule even within the privacy of his own home, 
with one exception being bronze fountains in his palace in Jerusalem that were said to be modeled after animals. He also combined his Roman and Jewish tendencies with his bathhouses. A Roman bathhouse has several different steps you would follow with specific pools you would then use. The process would culminate in a dip in the frigidarium, a cold pool. Herod replaced the traditional cold pool with a mikveh, which is a small pool connected to a spring or other natural water source that was used for ritual cleansing. But all these projects would pale in comparison to his magnum opus, the project that usually grants him the title The Great, the reconstruction of the Second Temple and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Second Temple in Jerusalem is also sometimes called Herod's Temple. It was situated on the Temple Mount, Herod's grand construction project. Notice that I said was and not is. We'll talk about that soon enough. I went over the history of the Second Temple a bit in my episode over the Maccabees, so let's do a quick recap if you didn't listen to that one. So there was an original temple in Jerusalem, referred to as Solomon's Temple as it was allegedly built by the biblical figure King Solomon in the 10th century BCE. That temple was destroyed in the mid-6th century BCE by the Neo-Babylonian Empire during the exile of the Jewish people from their homeland. Well, the Persian Empire eventually defeated the Neo-Babylonians and allowed the Jewish people to return to Judea and Jerusalem. It was originally completed around 516 BCE, though this version of the Second Temple was nowhere near as grand as the First Temple was said to be. Nonetheless, it was operational and acted as the main palace of worship for the Jewish people. Not even the desecration of the temple by the Seleucids would tear it down. Well, Herod decided that with all his power and money, and a boatload of taxes, he would redevelop the second temple in the surrounding area, aka the Temple Mount, into an area truly befitting its greatness. After all, this was a site that was said to be where the biblical figure Abraham originally made his covenant with God. That being said, one of Herod's first construction projects in the area wasn't necessarily all that biblically inspired. One of Herod's planned projects for the area was a fortress referred to as the Antonia Fortress, named after the Triumvir Mark Antony. There's a bit of historical confusion over the date this fortress was actually built. Herod did not begin his grand plan for the Temple Mount until around 30 BCE. During that time, Antony was having his butt kicked by Octavian and was about to kill himself. It was possibly even being built around the time that Herod was realizing he needed to start cozying up to the new emperor. So why would he name it after his new boss's enemy? Perhaps construction plans for Antonia Fortress were actually made further back than Herod's plan for the Temple Mount. Maybe it was just Herod trying to see how much he could get past the new man in charge. Going beyond that, Herod would double the size of the Temple Mount, bringing it from about 17 acres to 36 acres. Around this new mount were massive walls. The bricks used to create these walls were absolutely ridiculous in scale, with many weighing over 100 tons. While much of Herod's original architecture is lost to time, the Western Wall, known in the Western world as the Wailing Wall, is still a remnant of the original construction. There was also a more secular building within the Temple Mount, the Royal Stoa, also called the Royal Basilica. 
This was a center for financial activity where you could find bankers and merchants alike. The inclusion of the royal stoa very much fit in with Herod's worldview for his kingdom. A building like this was almost necessary for any Roman city, but he chose to include it within the Temple Mount to heighten its importance. For most devout Jews living in this time, the royal stoa was unnecessary and irreverent, but not a total deal-breaker. However, some biblical historians believe that the royal stoa may have been the location detailed in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus enters into the temple and goes on a rampage against the merchants. But obviously, you can't talk about the Temple Mount without actually talking about the second temple itself. The original temple, meaning Solomon's temple, was said to have held multiple sacred artifacts including the Ark of the Covenant and the staff of Moses' brother Aaron that were lost during the Babylonian exile. Other relics were recovered, but it was stated in the Talmud that the second temple lacked the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence of God. Other relics were recovered, but it was stated in the Talmud that the second temple lacked the Shekinah, the Divine Presence of God. I would highly doubt anyone would consider the Shekinah to have truly returned with Herod's renovations, considering a couple steps he took in the process. In order to truly get the best architectural masterpiece he could finance, Herod hired architects from Rome, Greece, and Egypt. This meant that, no doubt, the entire structure looked absolutely beautiful. You had three cultures who had been building really great stuff for centuries, millennia at this point for Egypt, coming together to create the holiest of holy spots for the Jewish kingdom. But here's the thing. He had a bunch of Gentiles designing a Jewish space. This was to be a place that only Jewish worshippers could enter. That is much more of a true fact than you would think considering that in 1871, archaeologists discovered a temple warning inscription that would have hung in the second temple. Written in Greek, it says, Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. Yeah, pretty ominous. However, Herod did something pretty crazy that quickly made people upset with his new building project. Over the gateway to the temple, he had a golden statue of an eagle, a major symbol of Rome, erected to welcome people in. In 4 BCE, a group of young Jewish citizens climbed up to the eagle statue and smashed it, as they believed it was almost as if Herod was inviting pagan elements into the temple. Herod then had the youths rounded up and subsequently had them executed. It was a massive project that cost years of sweat, money, and blood, but the reconstruction of the Temple Mount in the Second Temple would go on to be Herod's greatest achievement in life. Unfortunately, much of it was lost to time as Rome and Judea went to war in 66 CE, and the temple was destroyed four years later. We only have models of the actual temple now, but even those seem to depict a building that truly deserved to be recognized as a grand centerpiece of Judaism at this point in history. Though Herod's rise and ability to keep Judea under his control was impressive, how he chose to set up the future of his dynasty was… a bit less than that. But it still stands to be discussed. Herod had so many children, at least 14, and he had some very interesting ideas on how to deal with the inheritance of his new kingdom. 
Most rulers throughout history have gone for the very simple solution so as not to make things more difficult. The firstborn son or daughter, if you're in a society that actually allowed that, inherits the throne. Oldest surviving son or an adopted nephew or cousin if something goes wrong. Herod went for a very peculiar situation, though not one that was completely without a historical foundation. Originally, he did have the whole kingdom of Judea going to his sons. Yes, that's plural, sons. Aristobulus and Alexander. These two brothers weren't even Herod's oldest children, but they were the first sons he had after being named king. Unfortunately, Herod had these sons executed in 7 BCE. He then decided to go with his oldest son Antipater, but then Herod had Antipater executed two years later. Herod was now placing his hopes on one of his youngest sons, Antipas. Well, things changed once again in 4 BCE when Herod fell ill and decided to go for his weird new plan. The kingdom of Judea would be divided up into four separate pieces, thus forming the Herodian Tetrarchy, Tetrarchy referring to a state that has four separate units. Herod's son Archelaus was named as the Ethnarch of Judea, which means that he was king of the Jewish people ruling out of Jerusalem. He also ruled over Edomea and Samaria. Antipas ruled over the regions of Galilee and Perea, two areas that bordered the Jordan River, but also two areas that did not border each other. Philip was made tetrarch of an area in the northeast of Judea. The fourth person chosen to get a division of Herod's kingdom was his sister, Salome. She was given several cities to rule over under the title of Toparch, Greek for place ruler, which personally I think is a funny word in terms of etymology. Now, as a client king under the rule of Rome, Emperor Augustus had to approve of this as part of Herod's will. Since Herod had generally been doing a good job, i.e. not doing anything that caused problems for Rome, the emperor agreed to this division. Things then seemed to go relatively smoothly. For over a decade, the four family members ruled in relative harmony. However, in 6 CE, Archelaus was deposed as ethnarch by Augustus after claims of Archelaus ruling cruelly. Augustus then formally brought in most of the Herodian kingdom under true Roman control, transforming it into the province of Judea. Over the next couple decades, the rest of the territories would be claimed by Rome until, by 100 CE, the last of the Herodians died childless. Now, I don't know what would have happened if Herod had just given all of Judea to one of his children. If all of it had gone to Archelaus, Rome probably would have had the Judea province in totality decades before it did. So, in a weird twist of fate, separating his kingdom into several parts actually worked out for once. Herod died around 4 BCE, though some historians would claim he died later in 1 BCE or even 1 CE. We don't have a perfect record for his death, and there's a lot of debate surrounding the work of Jewish historian Josephus, whose account says Herod died after a lunar eclipse that occurred a bit before Passover. There's also arguments over whether his sons were actually considered rulers before Herod's death or not, but we don't have time to discuss all that. Herod's reign is often considered to have been going pretty well up until a point. During the last few years of his life, Herod started becoming chronically ill, with modern day historians hypothesizing that he was suffering from some form of gangrene. His mental state started deteriorating as he grew more seriously ill. 
This clouding of his judgment would lead Herod to have several members of his family executed, like his sons that I mentioned before. It got so bad to be someone close to Herod that it's claimed that when Augustus heard about what was going on, he joked that it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. The joke sounds better in Latin because the words for pig and son sound similar. Truly, the man who had completely restructured the kingdom of the Jewish people was now one of the most hated people among the ethno-religious group. So while the New Testament story of Herod calling out for the slaughter of infants in his kingdom is almost definitely fiction, many historians have said that this sort of behavior would not actually have been surprising had it actually occurred in the last years of Herod's reign. Herod had always had a mixed reception in his own lifetime. The local Jewish population never really considered him one of them, even after all he did to revamp Jerusalem as a modern late 1st century BCE city. So when he died after having seemingly lost all sense of rationality, it should not be a surprise that he was claimed as a tyrant throughout the entire kingdom. It's finally time in this episode of Were They Great to give a judgment on Herod's rule. So let's briefly go over everything once more. Herod's rule was… kinda average for the most part. The most impressive thing he did was build a lot of really nice looking buildings and create his own architectural style. Trust me, there's a reason why a lot of this episode was about architecture and not other things Herod accomplished. I've covered rulers in this show who were truly great. I've also covered rulers who were truly awful people. But Herod? He's not really either. Yes, killing members of his family is horrific. And yes, his construction projects were relatively impressive. But does that put him on the levels of other the greats like Peter I of Russia or Frederick II of Prussia? I mean, in life he was probably best known for rolling on his back in the face of Emperor Augustus. Granted, that probably allowed the Jewish people a few more decades of autonomy than they might have had otherwise. In death, Herod is most well known for something that he didn't do that has cast him as a villain in the world's largest religion. If you asked a random person on the street what King Herod did, they probably would say something about trying to murder Jesus when he was a baby. You almost definitely aren't going to hear something about how he created a semi-stable dynasty that lasted a century after his death. If most of the projects that he helped fund were still around and stable, that might have changed things dramatically. However, most of the ones he did that are still around are still here thanks in part to the efforts of Solomon the Magnificent, an Ottoman ruler who lived a millennium and a half after Herod's death. So with all that said, let's move on to the score. When it comes to judging Herod as great, we're kinda also judging him on a scale with the other the greats we've covered so far, which puts Herod in a highly disadvantageous spot. I have truly had a hard time trying to come up with what grade to assign him. Like I gave Peter the Great a C. Granted, the grading scale has been changed since then, meaning he'd actually get a higher grade if I redid it now. So unfortunately, I feel like I have to do something rough with Herod. To be honest, I don't think he really deserves the title The Great. But there's probably also someone out there known as So-and-So The Great who actually deserves it less than Herod. So, I am going to give Herod a D-plus on the Were They Great grading scale. <laughs> 
Weirdly enough, researching Herod for this episode actually made me think a lot over the next few decades after his death in history. If you were a Jew living in the Eastern Mediterranean world from about 40 BCE to 100 CE, you almost certainly had strong opinions about the guy. And though I'm not really religious, it made me think about how one of those people was surely Jesus. I really like looking at the historical foundation around religions. Shocking, I know, the history podcaster loves history. But Jesus lived in a post-Herod Judea, a Judea that had been allowed to become super Roman thanks to the efforts of Herod. Like, believe it or not, a lot of what Jesus said was actually, hey, maybe it's not so great that we've Romanized and politicized the kingdom of the Jews. So, it's also not surprising that, like a couple centuries before with the Maccabees against the Seleucids, the people of Judea would eventually rebel against the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, things didn't go as well this time. Now, I am not saying that Herod is fully responsible for the Jewish-Roman wars of the 1st and 2nd centuries CE. In fact, like I said, he miraculously somehow allowed Judea to stay in Jewish hands by dividing the kingdom. But cozying up with Augustus certainly didn't help out the very people he was supposed to rule. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going to learn about a man named Earl John Montague who lived in the UK in the 18th century. He's very well known for one specific thing, but I'm not going to tell you what that is at this time. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.